Hello and welcome to our podcast. I'm Dr. Mark White, and today I will be discussing a problem that researchers from those in basic science to those in applied research have been increasingly outspoken about. That is, the lack of measurement of forces used in rehabilitation. Today's talk is titled, Researchers Implore Us to Measure Forces Used in Rehabilitation. So why don't we? The clash of culture versus science, and what this means for evidence-based practice. First, why has this caught the attention of scientists? And second, why is this important? Well, first, much of the emerging basic science is mechanobiologically oriented. It seeks to examine what happens to the body, injuries, health status, and physiological processes when mechanical forces are introduced. At a chemical and cellular level, change is observable. Change occurs from the microscopic to the macroscopic. For example, work by Canadian surgeon Dr. Robert Salter in the mid-70s and 80s documented abundant microscopic cellular and structural changes in cartilage in response to the presence, absence, and modulation of mechanical loading. Many others since have done similar work for each of the tissues we deal with neuromusculoskeletally. In 2018, I attended an interdisciplinary symposium on mechanobiology at the University of Oklahoma Health Sciences Center. There, I met Dr. Vasilios Sikovitsas, PhD. He's a research scientist at the University of Oklahoma whose expertise involves, among other things, cellular level change in bone, cartilage, and other cells in response to mechanical loading. He had given a talk about these issues, and afterward we toured OU's Center for Human Performance Measurement. We discussed the rehabilitation application of physical forces to pathological tissues. I talked to him about my work at the time that included enhanced fracture rehabilitation for patients who were not surgical candidates. The enhancement was the specific rehabilitation-directed application of measured mechanical forces. The ideas I developed and applied were based on work by a variety of authors and my own observations based on decades of practical application of similar methods with soft tissues. Because unstable fractures heal with soft tissue first, then convert to bone, my clinical experience and reasoning told me similar rules should apply with modifications based on the desired responses that is an endpoint of solid, normally aligned, functional, load-bearing bone. Animal models, based on sheep, provided some of the best information regarding changes induced in mechanical tolerances to applied stresses and strain resulting from different stimuli applied at different time points in recovery. Dr. Sikovitsas agreed that the sheep models were good models. The difficulty, of course, would be in translating up the results to application in humans. A recent talk given by Dr. Stacy Dusing, a PhD-trained PT, who is a fellow of the American Physical Therapy Association, she suggested that translational research capacity needs to be increased. I agree. The idea is that some of what we know in basic science clearly has application in the world of rehabilitation. But as Dr. Sikovitsas observed, there are inherent difficulties in making the translation to practical application. Dominguez Romero and colleagues in 2021 observed in their systematic review of the treatment of rotator cuff tendinopathy that strength measures in rehabilitation, another form of force measurement, was almost entirely lacking. Their study, and others like it, 
repeatedly shows us that this important issue, force measurement, is routinely lacking. Second, change in response to mechanical loading to stimulate healthy adaptation is predictable. Predictability is the hallmark of useful science. Basic science researchers see this happen in their labs, they write about it, and then they are mystified when clinicians do not pick up on their ideas and run with them. It is the certainty of a predictability that makes this immensely important. But is the initial premise true? Do we really not measure forces used in rehabilitation? What does our science say? I already mentioned the study by Dominguez Romero and colleagues. There are plenty of others like it. What do we see happen clinically? There's a lot of related questions here. Time for a quick review. First, physical therapy schools have taught and continue to teach manual muscle testing. This is used as a measurement technique to assess force output across the spectrum of patients at all stages of rehabilitation. It is used generally in orthopedic cases, neurological, and is widely accepted as a valid and reliable tool suitable for clinical use. Multiple studies have been produced that convince us of its utility for this purpose. Unfortunately, it is a poor choice for this purpose. Many of those same studies also tell us that there are serious limitations in the methodology. The measure cannot be used, for example, to precisely quantify an amount of force generated with the test movement. Also, it cannot be considered as equivalent between raters when individual capability to generate a test force can be hugely variable. A 110-pound female examiner compared to a 230-pound male examiner will each have a different ceiling of available force capacity which they can deliver. For this reason, above a certain threshold, less force-capable raters will tend to overestimate a patient's physical capacity, while more force-capable raters will tend to underestimate a patient's physical capacity. Thus, the test loses precision at higher force values. At the opposite end of the spectrum, the lack of quantification leads to inability to spot meaningful change. For example, movements against gravity are a criterion-based reference, as is palpable muscle contraction that may not represent enough force to produce movement even in a gravity-reduced position. Yet it may still improve, just not enough to be detectable with these reference points. Such change may be important, but its presence is masked by the range of forces encompassed within even the low-value end of the manual muscle test scale. So, we know that the classical manual muscle test is multiply flawed. For one, it fails to yield a precisely quantified force value. It is incapable of doing so. Despite this and other shortcomings, it is still widely used in various clinical settings. In my opinion, in most instances, it should be abandoned. Multiple different tools are readily available to perform this vital function. They range in price from a few tens of dollars to thousands. As Dr. Sackett, the father of evidence-based medicine, said, in a blood pressure cuff is a readily available force dynamometer, and it functions just fine in this capacity. It works as a force transducer. It allows us to acquire quantitative data, and there are several studies detailing their utility for this purpose. 
One example among many, a study published by Souza and colleagues in the Brazilian Journal of Physical Therapy in 2014, describes strength testing with the blood pressure cuff. Other electronic devices provide equally useful, valid, and reliable data, making it possible to not only measure the absolute magnitude of peak force applied, but also the rate of change. This introduces the ability to detect small changes in a patient's force production or load acceptance capability. Small differences that are undetectable to the manual muscle test are detectable to a variety of force dynamometers. This is all well and good, but so far it only addresses defining a baseline and then monitoring change over time. Another advantage of precise quantification of forces is that it allows determination of the prescriptive dose of loading force to be applied for rehabilitative purposes, the very thing an increasing number of researchers are asking for. This allows a dose-dependent prescription to be rendered that is highly customizable to the patient's underlying pathology from the cellular level up. If this type of quantified data were widely available in general practice, it would likely help us answer some big questions in rehabilitation science, such as what typical baseline findings are like at intake, how they match to specific tissue or tissue complex injuries, what starting doses look like in terms of actual load, how patients respond over time to precisely controlled load dosing, and what normal change over time looks like, plus what force capacity looks like at discharge. Furthermore, this allows establishment of criterion-based reasons to alter the rehabilitation program and to determine patient readiness for discharge. Last, it could be standardized across multiple settings with multiple populations. In this view, the superiority of a quantifiable measure should be self-evident. So, what happens in the real world of the clinic? My observations compared to that of my colleagues, is that the manual muscle test is alive and well. It has not been replaced with newer tools and better methods. Even the ubiquitous pigment manometer, a blood pressure cuff by another name, does not appear to have made significant inroads to force quantification in clinical practice. While it is true that a few pockets of quantitative practice exist, this does not appear to be the norm. When I entered clinical practice nearly three decades ago, I was baffled as to why an antiquated approach was not already replaced. My instructors were indifferent, it seemed. They had this in the curriculum. It was well known historically as to were its limitations, and it was up to us more or less to choose to practice how we wanted. This was the standard of the day. When I asked practicing clinicians why they did not measure patients' capability to deal with forces, or their strength measures even, clinicians routinely responded that in their busy clinic setting, they did not have time. In other words, it was less important to them than deciding what to do for treatment. Of course, this misses the point. Force testing is absolutely vital for certain types of prescriptions necessary to manage certain types of pathology. Upon graduation, I abandoned the manual muscle test for more precise quantification. Personal trainers know to track and monitor loads applied to their clients. Surely we could do at least as well. Athletic trainers do this too. So, what was unique about physical therapy that made this fall outside of the norm? The answer seems to lie in acculturation. 
and the reality of most professional school graduates. Studies tell us that after graduation, most physicians, for example, practice their entire career with the same knowledge that they graduated with. This despite CME requirements, fellowships, and other methods of shoring up professional knowledge to ensure practitioners do not fall behind. Physical therapists, also studied in this capacity, are generally no different. In both cases, only about the top 20% of practitioners truly advance their knowledge and apply it for patients and professional benefit. I mentioned acculturation. What about that? What is different about the profession of physical therapy than, say, personal trainers, athletic trainers, or even strength and conditioning coaches? The answer seems to lie in the reality of our work with often profoundly injured or debilitated patients versus the mostly healthy clientele of the other groups. Testing, rehabilitation, and training methods have not really been robustly developed or widely disseminated in general for the types of patients we tend to work with. We have a lot more variety. Thus, occupying a specialized rehabilitation science niche, but trained as generalists in our field, at least until post-graduation subspecialization, but more on that at another time, it is up to us to fill the gap. That gap is what to do, specifically and quantitatively. Hence, problem-oriented approaches, which tend to not be quantitative in this way, and that are specific to certain types of perceived lesions promoted by organizations, such as schools of thought regarding manual therapy, the McKinsey method, Sarman's movement, system impairment techniques, and others. In a recent podcast entitled, We Can't Help You, Now What? A Perspective on Chronic Conditions, I mentioned systematic reviews and meta-analysis for patients with chronic conditions, specifically hip and knee osteoarthritis. A consistent and troubling finding was that the rationale for a chosen intensity level of forces for exercise intervention, and by translation, loading demand, both in terms of absolute magnitude of load and stability, which challenges load acceptance and production capacity, was never provided. It appears that decisions regarding this important parameter are arbitrary. The problems are much the same when it comes to examination and treatment of spinal disorders. So, it is clearly evident that current systems of thought and treatment-based methodologies do not use force measurements as anything more, it seems, than something to monitor change over time at best and ignore it altogether at worst. In other words, forces are not treated as important to either the diagnostic process or treatment prescriptions. So, even if acquired, it seems clinicians and researchers do not know quite what to do with the information. Thus, most of the time, it isn't even collected or reported as having anything important to do with decision-making regarding the entry or exit point for rehabilitation. There are, however, exceptions. Regenerative and precision medicine both concern themselves with the question of optimizing the dose of rehabilitation. The former is particularly concerned with post-procedure dosing for a variety of treatments utilizing a number of new and improved techniques, such as stem cell and ontologous cell transplants, chondral mosaic plasty, pharmacological support for cellular potentiation, and more. 
At present, no widely accepted guidelines are available for management of rehab related to these procedures. Precision medicine more often concerns itself with customization of dosing for treatment programs related to otherwise non-surgical management of problems brought on by injury or disease, but which is not necessarily, though may also include, post-procedure of some kind. Acculturation involves specific steps involved in the process or act of acquiring a new culture. PT schools provide this stepwise process. One then gains access to the style of thinking and behaving that is associated with being a professional physical therapist. New culture is acquired and then acted upon. Most will simply continue this line of thinking and behaving. A few, around 20%, will think differently. It's natural for them to. They will merge PT culture with their own style of thought and action, often acquired from other exposures idiosyncratically. This can lead to beneficial innovation. The surrounding culture may at times appear to inhibit progress due to perceived demand for hard evidence, but this ignores the reality that evidence comes in many forms. It is hierarchical in nature, and a sound rationale based upon existing evidence can provide a jumping-off point for further development of ideas, ideas that influence examination and treatment, as well as analysis of the results. Furthermore, because we are talking about quantification, they can be studied. This can help remodel the lens through which we view our patients, what we do with them, and our outcomes. If the culture is amenable to examining and embracing such change. This is what was part of the message in a seminal paper by Mueller and Malouf, Tissue Adaptation to Physical Stress, a Proposed Physical Stress Theory to Guide Physical Therapist Practice, Education, and Research. This article was published in the journal Physical Therapy in 2002. What does this mean for evidence-based practice? I already hinted at what I think it means. It means refashioning our culture to engage in scientifically-based practice, not just evidence-based practice. We are trained with a lot of the evidence, and we can always look up much more, but a scientifically-oriented practice takes us beyond where we are currently. As an example, what do we do with patients with chronic low back pain accompanied by radiating symptoms below the knee that do not have a single hypermobile spinal segment? and non-centralizing symptoms who hurt more when stabilizing co-contractions are engaged during movement and who hurt more with traction or spinal loading. Good luck finding a randomized controlled trial for that. RCTs, and even more so systematic reviews and meta-analysis, occupy the pinnacle of the evidence-based hierarchy in healthcare. Chronicity and absence of centralization are big clues that McKinsey's approach is far less likely to be successful in a case like this. Chronicity plus lack of hypermobility plus symptoms distal to the knee are big clues that manual therapy is unlikely to meet with success. Increased pain with stabilizing co-contractions and spine loading suggests that exercise is at least going to be problematic. Traction is directly irritable, so that appears unhelpful and so on. There are ways to solve this kind of problem, but it goes beyond evidence-based practice. No large studies describe patients like this or tell us what to do with them. Yet patients like this do exist. 
I've seen and successfully treated them. Other novel problems abound as well, each with their own nuances that require dipping into the art of practice, which, by the way, is, I think, a manifestation of emergent realizations that occur while thinking about complex systems. The main takeaways from today's talk are, one, incorporate force measures routinely in practice. This can take many forms, but make it an instrument-assisted measure that gives you a number produced by a measurement tool. The tool itself matters less than the fact of obtaining an objective, reproducible data point. Who use this information to aid your therapeutic dosing, especially for rehabilitative exercise. For now, not much guidance is available. However, this is something that I have explored and teach. One example is a case report I've mentioned before, published in JOSPT Cases in 2021, regarding mechanobiologically oriented rehabilitation of an acetabular fracture, and which can be generalized to other fractures. Similar processes are true for the other soft tissue types. The APTA has some resources, as does the Alliance for Regenerative Medicine, the National Stem Cell Foundation, and others. 3. Incorporating force measures regularly in practice can lead to improved dosing, tracking, and monitoring of your patients. 4. Force measures can lead to better research. This is precisely because it relates directly to important treatment parameters that can be quantified, and because they can be quantified, they can be replicated. 5. Force measures can lead to both a more tailored and streamlined episode of care and better patient outcomes. Ultimately, this is what we all want. Do it. It will make a difference. I'm Dr. Mark White. That concludes our talk for now. Thanks for listening, and as always, may you and your patients be well. That's all for today.